Father, we are so grateful for a new day. Uh, the sun has arisen to show us your kind care for the world and uh, the sure hope of resurrection and glory. For the Son of Righteousness has risen with healing in his wings. And we long for your healing, Lord Jesus. We long for your spirit to continue to set us free and to give us grace to walk in the freedom that's ours. In you and in the gospel, help us understand the glory of belonging to you, the, the power that's ours being in union with Christ. Thank you for the gift of faith. Thank you for your work in us, for us. Uh, so we pray that this lesson this morning will bring our lives greater confidence greater hope, greater assurance, a greater sense of your love, greater clarity in our thinking about what you've done for us, and uh, that we therefore might walk before you and reveal back to you something of the glory of your holiness and your love. Thank you for my dear friends who've joined. Would you encourage them, teach them, help them this morning? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hopefully you have the handout. We are looking at Romans 8, 1 to 4. Don't forget to mute, guys. Somebody's not muted. Romans 8, 1 to 4. I'll read for us 1 through 8, and then we'll dig into the first four verses. Here's the word of the Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Again, we'll take up uh, verses 5 through 8 next week. This week, let's focus on verses 1 to 4, and we'll start with this question. Why did Paul write Romans 8? Answer, he just wrote Romans 7. And what's the significance of that? Paul has warned us in chapter 7 that in the Christian life going forward, you will experience defeat, perhaps even despair over sin and difficulty. One commentator described the results of being in Romans 7 as experiencing a revolution of consciousness. Now you're much more acutely aware of sin working within you and as a blessing, you have the inability to find lasting pleasure in sin. So though you still continue to sin, it's not in an unbroken pattern as a slave to sin. You find no lasting pleasure in sin. And this is summed up perhaps in verse 15 
of chapter 7 where Paul says, for I don't understand my own actions, translated, my actions seem contrary to the truth of who I am, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. So what's the word that describes how Paul feels? He feels like a hypocrite. I say as a Christian, law-keeping, righteousness, obeying God, seeking God, loving God, serving others is good. And yet I don't always do that. But make sure you distinguish between sincere and insincere hypocrites. Am I a hypocrite? Sure I am. Because I say I should live this way, but I don't always do it. I fail to. But the difference between a sincere and an insincere hypocrite is a sincere hypocrite is aware of the contradiction in their thoughts, behaviors, and words and cares about it. It grieves them. An insincere hypocrite says one thing, does the opposite, and doesn't show any care or remorse over it. Here's the point. This could easily leave you in a state of fear, trepidation, and defeat. You're more and more acquainted with indwelling sin. What's to keep you from living with a sense of, and here's the, uh, teased out some words for you on the handout, a sense of condemnation, dread, guilt, conviction, self-pity. You could probably think of some other words, and I want to distinguish those words for you because they're all important words. Again, the awareness of sin doesn't leave you with a sense of condemnation or dread. That's sort of a state of soul. Oh, I'm a condemned person. I dread or fear the judgment of God. See, Paul wants you moving out of that. He doesn't want you there. That's why he begins, and we'll see this in a second, with there is therefore now no condemnation. That's a legal term, condemnation. It's a, sort of a state of the, uh, of the soul. Paul is pastoral. He doesn't want you living there, and he's going to tell you why. Guilt and conviction are, are just words that I would use more specifically with respect to being aware of unrighteous thoughts, words, and actions. You should feel guilty when you break God's law, because you are. The Spirit of God loves you enough to convict you of sin when you sin because sin is bad for you. It doesn't bring glory to God. And the Holy Spirit has a job description to convict you of sin. It's his pleasure. It is good for you. And so when we're convicted of sin, we thank God. Thank you, Lord. I'm convicted. That word, that thought, that failure to do, that whatever it was, giving into something, that thank you that I'm convicted, that's a blessing, it's a grace, it's evidence that the Spirit of God is within me. If you are working through the second half of Romans 7, feeling beat up, feeling like Paul is describing you, you're being convicted, that's a wonderful thing. The Spirit never condemns you. So if on the occasion of, 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 of pointing out sin, realizing your failures, you're feeling dread of God's condemnation, that's probably the devil. The devil loves to condemn Christians, to keep them under a weight or a burden of feeling worthless, unworthy. Well, of course we're unworthy. We were never worthy of God's love. That's the whole point of the gospel. 
those unworthy of God's love are now those who are trophies of God's grace with unspeakable worth in his sight. That's what the Spirit, the Spirit wants to convict you, bring you to Jesus, show you that Jesus' cross was enough to cleanse of your sin and set you in a new way. I mention here self-pity because sometimes when we're convicted or aware of our sin, we feel self-pity, which is another form of pride. So it can go like this. Oh, darn, I just failed to do that, or I just did that again. And, and we feel a sense of disappointment in ourselves because we actually thought we were better than that, which, of course, is true in part, right? It's true in part. We are better than that. We don't have to sin. He's brought us through chapter 6. We're no longer slaves to sin. But sometimes this internal feeling we have is really a prideful sense of, oh, I didn't think I was, I thought I was above doing that. And the reality is, no, you're still struggling with sin. You can very easily do that sin. So self-pity can just be another form of pride. All right, all this to say, we're now in a fierce battle with indwelling sin, and we're wondering, coming out of chapter 7, what are my weapons? Where does the power come from I need to wage this war? Paul has walked you through this intense conflict. I don't do what I want to do. I do what I don't want to do. But not I, sin that indwells me. And here's, here's one way to sum it up. It's, it's where he leaves us, 21 to 25 of chapter 7. Here's his summary, bringing us, getting us ready for chapter 8. This is, the, this is what chapter 8 is answering. He says in 721, So I find it to be a law, a principle, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. So there's this acute sense of internal warfare. I set my heart, my mind, my words to honor God, and I'm aware, often, perhaps not always, that sin is waging a counteroffensive against that thing. Otherwise, how do I explain my sin? Since in Christ I've been set free from the tyranny and from the power of sin keeping me its slave. I find that evil lies close at hand, not just outside of me, the devil, but inside of me. This is this indwelling sin at which we're at war. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Again, he steps back. He looks at the true eye. The true eye has been circumcised in Christ. I have a new heart. God has taken out my heart of stone, given me a heart of flesh. In my inner being, there's delight in the law of God. This is evidence of being a new creation. I look at who God is. I want to please him. I look at his law and I say, that's the way to please him. I delight in the law of God. It is good. An unbeliever can't say that. An unbeliever has at best a passing interest in the law of God. And he says, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Again, it feels like a captivity because it's never going away. I know I'm going to fail until I've been set free from this in glory. He says in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He was going to say, who will ultimately set me free from the presence of indwelling sin? That, that's the question. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is going to do it. Jesus has done it. He's looking to Christ. The only way to live with an ongoing battle with indwelling sin is looking to Christ. So then, kind of a summary of everything he's done in seven. 
I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. I with my mind. So he's going to He's going to show us in 5 through 8 how critical thinking will be to living righteously. We'll talk about that next week. So Paul wants to answer this, who's going to set me free? How do I deal emotionally with the dread, the sense of condemnation, the sense of guilt? How do I deal with all that? And now we're ready for chapter 8. Essentially what Paul does in 8 is he reviews the benefits of justification and sanctification. So Paul, he never lets you, in the Christian life, he never wants you to wander far from what Jesus has done for you. Never wander far. So you'd think at the beginning of eight, having brought us all the way, these eight, you know, these seven prior chapters, you'd think he'd, he'd be ready to get on and start to tell you how to live as a Christian. No. He is going to review the benefits of your justification and its implications for your sanctification. So here's a simple outline of chapter 8. The key word that one key word to describe what 8 is all about is the word reassurance. He wants you reassured. Why? Because you've just come out of 7. You're aware that you're going to fail, tempted to despair. Who's going to set me free from this this, every time I want to do right, and there's a temptation not to do it. Uh, so he wants to reassure you of your status. And again, a sense, there's a sense in which when, um, when he begins 8 with there is therefore now no condemnation, he's hearkening back to 5.1. Uh, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In a sense, this is a recapitulation of that. So this reassurance Paul wants to give you begins with an affirmation, an assertion that there's no condemnation, and it ends with no separation. If you know anything about chapter 8, it ends on this fireworks of assurance that nothing in heaven and earth can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, this is what a tender conscience needs to have, reassurance. Here's a brief outline of eight, just, just looking ahead briefly. Verses 1 through 11, salvation, it's a fact. And then he gives some application about mortifying sin and living by the Spirit. Uh, 14 to 17, he gets into our sonship, application, intimacy with the Father, a joint inheritance with Jesus, uh, the Son of God. Third thing he does, he talks about sufferings with an application to be patient and hope. And then 26 to 39 is all about security with some very specific actually helps and application that we're helped in prayer by the Holy Spirit. We can be confident everything as God is working in his providence for our good. We can be certain of, of glory. We've been freely given all things in Jesus. We're more than conquerors and inseparably loved. So there's kind of a simple outline of where Paul goes over the span of chapter 8. Now let's look at 1 through 4. Verse 1, a declaration that you have been delivered from the legal condemnation of sin. <clears throat> there is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a good verse to have memorized. It's a good verse to call to your mind as soon as 
Uh, Satan comes knocking at the door trying to condemn you. It's a good verse to call to your mind every time you're convicted of sin and feeling like God doesn't love you anymore. This is a very important verse. There is is simply a declaration. This is the indicative. Paul is telling us what is true. What is true about those who are in Christ Jesus. He is indicating the facts. Again, he never gets away from the gospel. There is, therefore, therefore meaning he's concluding uh, uh, um, everything he's argued thus far, that therefore harkens back, he takes a lasso, as it were, so to speak, and goes all the way back to chapter one and summarizes everything he's worked through for you. That's, that's that, that therefore. There is, therefore, now, under these circumstances, if you're in Christ, you're no longer under law, but you're under grace. There's only two kinds of people in the world. Those are in union and solidarity with Adam, who are at peace with sin and at war with God. Those who the spoils of Jesus Christ are at peace with God and correspondingly at war with sin. You're either in solidarity with Adam, solidarity with Christ. If you're, we're all born in solidarity with Adam, we're born obligated to give God, to fulfill the covenant of works, to give God perfect obedience, perfect righteousness if we're going to make a claim on his presence. Uh, every human being owes God perfect obedience if they're going to go to heaven when they die. Of course, they can't give God that. We've been delivered from that now. We're in Christ. We're under grace, not under law. We live by grace and mercy. He says there is therefore now no condemnation. That's a legal term. This is the benefit of justification. Remember, justification is about righteousness. So here's a good question to use in evangelism, particularly with the cults like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. What are you trusting to make you absolutely, perfectly, thoroughly, completely righteous for the presence of God? No one's going to stand in the presence of God unless they are as holy and sinless and righteous as God is. What are you trusting for that? So justification is all about your ultimate trust for righteousness. And the doctrine of biblical justification is a double imputation, a double accounting. Our sin, our unrighteousness, goes into the body of the perfectly righteous Jesus. All that unrighteousness is removed from us and nailed to the cross. And we receive in exchange, we are imputed, the perfect righteousness of Jesus. You have everything you need to be at peace with God. Your sin has been removed, paid for at, at the cross in the death of Jesus. You are now clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's why it's unthinkable that after you die, you go to a place of purging. It's unthinkable. All your sins have gone to Jesus. There's, there were, he, he cried out on the cross to tell us that. It's paid. It's finished. The debt's paid. All your sins to Jesus. Paul says in Colossians 2, he's forgiven us all of our transgressions. They're all on the cross. And all the righteousness you need for the presence of God is imputed to you in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who knew no sin, the perfect Jesus, to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What a glory. This is what's good news about the gospel. Everything you need to be right with God is accomplished outside of you. It's done by Jesus. And he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have a new status. You're in union with Christ. 
not Adam. And so the difference between those two, being in union with Adam, union with Christ, couldn't be more opposite. And that's why I put it for you on the handout. In union with Adam, that life is marked by sin and death. In union with Christ, righteousness and life. These are the Paul's terms. Union with Adam, condemnation has to be. In God's moral universe, wherever there is sin, because God is just and he will forever be just, he's a perfect judge, wherever there's sin, it inexorably attracts judgment. Sin must be judged. If you die with your sins, you'll be judged. You'll come under condemnation. The hope of the gospel is, if my sins have gone to Jesus, Jesus has been judged in my place, I'll never be judged for my sins. You can't be. That's why he is saying, there is therefore now no condemnation. That's, uh, so life in union with Christ is justification, complete acceptance with God. By grace, think of the last words of the hymn, the last stanza of the hymn, and can it be? No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, clothed in righteousness divine, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Woo! Man, there's the gospel. No dread, no condemnation, clothed in Christ because Jesus and all that's in him is mine. What a savior, right? What a savior. Loving, helping, keeping, he is with me to the end. So in union with Adam, we're powerless to fulfill the law. In union with Christ, God has accomplished in Christ what we never could. He's fulfilled the law in our stead. Union with Adam, our sins are sins against the law of God. In union with Christ, they're sins against love. Yes, we do break the law of God. Of course we do. But because we're loved so much, we have a deeper sense of offending the heart of our Savior. I fail to bring delight to the heart of my beloved Father, my precious Savior, my older brother. Our sins have a deeper import. In union with Adam, slaves to the flesh. In union with Christ, free in the Spirit. So now we're ready to look at verses 2 to 4. Delivered from the actual power of sin. These seem to be a follow-up commentary on the first half of chapter 6. When Paul begins verse 2 with, for the law of the spirit of life, he, he's answering the question, why is there therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus? So if you're reading along with Paul, and you begin verse 1, remember you're coming out of 7, sort of living on the edge of, oh, uh, who's going to set me free? What about this dread that I might fear? Is, has God condemned me for my sin? Does my sin separate me from God? And he makes this wonderful assertion, gospel assertion. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This is where he wants you of living. I think I skipped something I wanted to say about the warm side of the house. Is that coming up? Where is that on my handout? Uh, oh, well, sorry. Um, 
So when he begins to uh, verse 2 with 4, it looks like he's answering the question, why is there therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ? And here's his answer. For the law of the spirit of life, remembering that Paul uses the Greek word namas, translated law, it can mean the law of God, the precepts of God. It can mean power, and it can mean principle. Here I think it means power. For the power of the spirit of life, the power of the Holy Spirit, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the power of sin and death. It feels like a recapitulation at the beginning of chapter 6. If you're in union with Christ, you've died with Christ, you've been risen with Christ, the Holy Spirit has created a new creature, a new person, who's no longer a slave to sin. You were a slave, you're no longer a slave. How did that come about? By the power of the Holy Spirit. So you're free from condemnation, there's no guilt, you're free from sin slavery, there's no bondage. Think about the first verse of August Top Lady's him, Rock of Ages. He says, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed, here it is, be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. To be hidden in Christ is to experience a double cure from sin, cleansed of sin and freed from its power. Hmm? See, that he caught it right there in the first verse of Rock of Ages. You've sung that for years and years and may not be aware of what you were singing. You're, you're singing what is on the handout. You're not only freed from the condemnation of sin, no guilt, you're freed from sin slavery, no bondage. Be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its a guilt and power. This is the benefits we have in Christ. And then it raises the question, okay, so I'm, I'm not seeing on, this on the handout. I, I thought it was on here somewhere, so I'm going to say it anyway, about what Romans 8 is. And it's a wonderful uh, quote from J.I. Packer. And it's that Packer wants you living on the warm side of the house. You know how most homes you live in have some exposure? Well, the home I grew up in around the Beltway in McLean, my bedroom was on the northwest corner of the home. That meant the sun never shined directly into it, and that meant it was on the cooler side of the house. Contrasted with my brother's room across the way, which was the southwest corner of the house, full of sun, full of warmth. Packer says, Paul, want, he walks you into chapter 8, and, he, and in our struggle with sin in this life, he wants you living on the warm side of the house, the sunny side of the house, the bright side of the house. So that's why he's, Paul is flooding our hearts and our minds with all this light, all this good stuff, as we slug it out with sin in this life. Okay, so how has God affected this deliverance from the actual power of sin? Verse 3. For God has done, read what is absolutely impossible with human beings, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So can the law justify a human being? The law can justify perfect people. Someone that's never sinned, 
the law comes along and says, oh, you've kept everything I've required, you've done nothing I forbid, the law can say, you're justified, go into the presence of a holy God. So who was justified by the law? Jesus. <laughs> the law can justify sinless people. What can't the law do? It can't justify sinners because the law finds fault. The law says you didn't do what you required. You did what's forbidden. And where the law finds that, it can't not but condemn. So the law in and of itself can justify sinless people, godly people. It can't justify sinners. Perhaps this, perhaps this illustrates it. I'm not sure. Think of the law as a screwdriver. And what can a screwdriver uh, screw? It can, it can take a nice metal screw and screw it. That's Jesus. He's perfect. It can't screw a, a wet noodle. And we're wet noodles. The law can't make you go into the presence of God. We're wet noodles. And what's abominable about religion, all religions except Christianity, the only religion of grace, what's abominable about religion is it teaches you can be justified by your own, by, no, you're a wet noodle. You're helpless. The law can't justify sinners. Impossible. So what God, God has done, what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Think flesh, and there is our sin. How did he do this? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. What is this an allusion to? The incarnation. You know, you hear echoes of Galatians 4.4 in this. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, born of a woman, a human person to substitute for human beings. All those animals in the Old Testament were inadequate to be an ultimate sin offering. You needed human blood to pay the price for your sins. God sent forth a son, born under a woman, born under the law. Read what? The second Adam, coming to keep the, law, the covenant of works in our place, uh, coming to earn a righteousness that we needed, born under a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those under the law. Because what is the law doing to sinners? Condemning them, condemning them. What do you need? You need redemption. You need to be delivered. You need to be forgiven. You need to be bought out of that state of slavery to sin and condemnation. So God has sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, meaning he had flesh like us. It was like us, but it was only like us in that it was obviously not sinful. A stunning, isn't it? A human person tempted in all ways as we are. Jesus faced every temptation that any human being ever did, but he never sinned. So God sends his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and he sends him for sin. Here is our substitute. Christianity is the only religion of the substitute. God doing for us in Jesus what we can't do for ourselves. All the other world religions are a bargain with God. You do your part, he owes you. All the world religions are advice. Keep the rules and God will love you. 
Christianity is an announcement. Jesus kept the rules for you. You're accepted. Christianity is a declaration. God has done for sinners what they absolutely can't do for themselves. That's why it's good news. It's good news. Any religion that puts the onus on what a human being performs is not good news. It's dread because the law will find you out. So God did sending his own son on the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. On the cross, sin was judged. Your indwelling sin was judged. It was condemned, so now it can no longer condemn you. And again, so when, when indwelling sin gets the better of you, look to the cross as your only hope. Not trying to, not trying to balance your sins with good things. Look to the cross. Look to Christ. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. Thy glory. That's your only hope. Jesus' blood and righteousness. Verse 4 in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So now Paul's, he's, he's coupled justification and sanctification. They're inseparable. Those who God has justified will be sanctified. What is the purpose of all of these great gospel graces being done for you in Christ? Here's the, here's the purpose clause, verse 4 in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Oh, what God has done for us in Christ now enables a different life to be performed in us. Sanctification. The gracious work of Jesus for us becomes the motivation for a holy life within us. So remember, justification is punctiliar. It happens once. Sanctification is what? Progressive. It's ongoing. Justification is where you trust an alien, meritorious righteousness. Alien, it's outside of you. Meritorious, you're trusting that Christ's merits are sufficient for God to be accepted, uh, God to accept you. You trust in justification, Christ's righteousness, so that you can offer a responsive, non-meritorious righteousness to God with a new motive, gratitude and love. See the difference? Our works are not meritorious. They're not earning any status. They're done by people who are sons and daughters of God, who are accepted, who are in union with Christ. Christ's works are meritorious. Ours aren't. Ours we offer as a response to receiving this grace. What's our motive? Gratitude and love. So in the last few minutes, let me just tease out uh, some marks of a Christian who really gets this justification in whom the righteous requirement of the law is being worked out because there's this ongoing work of sanctification. What are some marks of a growing Christian? Well, there's new and increased praise of the Lord. What is God after in this, on the earth? He wants worship. There's, there's worship. You become more and more of a worshiper and new love for Jesus. So I sing a hymn in my devotion sometime uh, that goes like this. To Christ the Lord, let every tongue its noblest tribute bring. When he's the subject of the song who can refuse to sing, 
Survey the beauties of his face and on his glories dwell. Think of the wonders of his grace and all his triumphs tell. (laughs) The wonder of Christ, the glories of Christ. That becomes more and more the theme of your life, as does mercy. John Stoker's song, Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart, the boast of my tongue. Thy free grace alone from the first to the last has won my affections and bound my soul fast. We live by mercy. There's an increasing sense of the mercy of God, the grace of God that's producing in us greater and greater measures of humility. But for grace, I would be what? A disaster. And so a growing Christian sees more and more their pride and how their pride operates in their hearts. And therefore, you're casting yourself more and more on the Lord. Look, Lord, if you don't show up, if I'm not working in the power, walking in the power of the Spirit, I'm hosed. And he, Paul's going to get into that. He's going to tease that out in chapter 8. He's going to make sure you get out of 8 knowing how to do the Christian life, walking in the power of the Spirit. So you think of uh, a mark of a growing Christian winning this battle with the flesh, what he says in Galatians 5. Here's the fruit of the flesh, all these things he lists. Now here's the fruit of the Spirit. You want to know if you're walking in the power of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. And there are other graces. I think that list is representative, not exhaustive. He doesn't have humility on that list. But boy, isn't that, is that not one of the fruits of growing in the Spirit? So there's, there's a, a, a greater sense of intensity of this warfare with sin, the devil's lies, a greater sense of dependence upon needing the Holy Spirit that's accompanied by a greater skepticism of your own ability to do anything good for God left to yourself. You're skeptical of your own resources. So Christian growth is you're getting closer and closer to the Lord, seeing in comparison to him how unlike him you are. You're being convicted of your sin. And you're convicted of your sin, you're looking to Christ. And you're finding Christ, his accomplishments for you, his cross, bigger and bigger and bigger. So when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, I pour contempt on all my pride, However it goes when I survey. Just lost in my train of thought there. But the cross is uh, more and more our, our, uh, our confident boast. That's how Paul ends Galatians 6. Okay, so we are now ready <clears throat> to uh, next week to look at how Paul contrasts the role of the mind in, in uh, the, the life of somebody still in union with Adam versus the life of somebody who by the Spirit is in union with Jesus Christ. What does that mind do? We'll look at next week at uh, five through eight. I think it'll be uh, very, hopefully very practical for you. So let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for how your servant Paul is so jealous, so thorough to keep directing us to the work of Christ for us. Thank you. Thank you for good news. There is therefore now, now that we're in Christ, 
Now that we belong to Christ, now that we've accepted Christ, now that he is Lord and Savior, now that we are participating in his life, now that we're no longer in union with Adam, but in union with Christ, now that we're living by faith, now that we're alive from the dead, now that we've been regenerated, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ. What good news. We need that. Uh, some of us are easily prone to feeling dread, feeling worthless, feeling um, excessively um, just burdened and guilty. So Spirit, convict us of sin that we might see a better way to live, a more Christ-honoring way to live, and experience more and more the glory of being like Christ. Convict us, and as Paul does, point us again to Jesus, the sufficiency of him condemning sin on the cross, that it can never condemn us, nor can the law, nor can the devil. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a glory to be in Christ. Thank you. So now as we go to worship, may we sing of that glory, relish it, bring you honor and praise, bring delight to the heart of our God as we acknowledge who you are, as we rest in you. I pray for husbands who are listening to be helped by 1 Peter 3.7. I pray for others, not husbands, nonetheless, to be encouraged by the word of truth, by how we're called to do relationships. So make this morning a triumph of grace, an advancement of the kingdom of our reigning Christ, a kingdom of truth, a kingdom of mercy, a kingdom of grace, a kingdom of power, a kingdom of resurrection. You're resurrecting the dead. Hallelujah. You began with us. May we live as those alive from the dead, alive in Christ. And we pray in his name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you all for joining us. Thanks.